If you're just joining us for the first time, we've been studying this story together. It's a story about a widow named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, who was also a widow named Ruth. They returned to, the, to God's, God's people's land, the land of Israel, where they were destitute women without anyone to provide for them. And we've seen God already working to provide for them in astounding ways through the generosity of, of a distant relative named Boaz. And it's here that the story picks up in chapter 2, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So keep close. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then... As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. God, we've read your word and we thank you for it. I pray that you would guide us to understand it now. It's for your name we pray. Amen. As we've read the story of Ruth over the last few weeks, uh, we've, we've talked a lot about suffering and specifically about how God is at work in our suffering in, our, in the first week of our study in Ruth. And then last week, we talked about how God has care and compassion for sufferers like you and me. 
And, but if God cares for us, that could be fine news. Just to know that somebody's got your back, somebody cares about you, somebody's worried about you. But the news of God's care for us is actually so much better because he isn't just kind, he's also powerful. So God looks at you when you're in a season of suffering or a trial, and he doesn't just say, it's going to be all right. He says, I'm going to make it all right. He doesn't look at you in your suffering and belittle you and say, it's not that big of a deal. He looks at your suffering and he says, it is a very big deal. And I'm going to save you from it. I'm going to save you from it. The Bible's teaching about suffering is not an abstract idea. So I don't want you to walk away from from the book of Ruth and think, oh, well, you know, suffering is a fact of reality. Suffering is not an abstract idea in your life, nor is it an abstract idea in God's word. And so God wants to respond to it, not with more abstract ideas, but with a concrete hope that you can build your life on. Throughout our study in the book of Ruth, we've said that God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And today we're going to follow that thread to the end. And in seeing how God provided for Ruth, he didn't just use her suffering, but he dealt with it by providing a redeemer named Boaz. We see a picture of of God's plan to solve all suffering through a redeemer named Christ, who gave himself to die for our sins and rise again. God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And there will be a day when, because of the work of Christ, every sin will be forgiven. Every pain will be healed. And every pang of loneliness that you feel will be resolved by fellowship with a perfect God. That's God's plan for your life today, friends. And we see a picture of it in the book of Ruth. So the story begins, our our portion of the story today. Ruth has been working with Boaz for the very first day, and she comes home with this bountiful harvest, and Naomi's like, well, something happened today. Because this is, this is an absurd amount of food. Ruth has been scavenging in the field. So Naomi's at home all day, maybe thinking, I don't know what Ruth's going to come home with. Maybe it'll be enough for her, but it's definitely not going to be enough for both of us. But what happens? Naomi comes back with this bountiful harvest. Read the rest of the story in Ruth 2 if you missed it last week. Because Boaz is incredibly kind to Ruth and provides for her again and again and again. So she comes home with an embarrassment of riches, about six gallons of barley. And that's where the story begins. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. She separated the wheat from from the chaff. And it was about an ephah of barley, about six to seven gallons. And she took it up and went into the city. So she's been working in the fields. Then she goes home to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's staying in the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Like, this is not normal. Someone was very kind to you. Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, the, the passage has been emphasizing Ruth's hard work. And Naomi doesn't give Ruth's hard work the time of day. Not because it's insignificant, but because the rest of the story isn't going to focus on Ruth's hard work, but on Boaz's kindness. And so Naomi, by not even paying any attention seemingly to Ruth's hard work, is foreshadowing. It's drawing your attention to not look at Ruth and her efforts, but to look at Boaz and what he's done to save her. And even here we see a picture of Christ and the deliverance that we can find in him. Not based on our own efforts, but on his work on our behalf. Verse 19 continues, So so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today 
is Boaz. And Ruth says the name Boaz, and Naomi's eyes light up. Her, her, her eyes grow. Her eyelids shoot up into her hair. And she says, Boaz? You've been with Boaz? I know Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Boaz has been incredibly kind to Ruth and to Naomi, and Naomi thanks God. Naomi gives God the glory. Naomi thanks God. She says, it's God's kindness that has not forsaken the living or the dead. Remember, friends, who's really calling the shots in the story of Ruth? It's not Boaz being an industrious farmer. The Lord gave growth to the crops. It's not Ruth being a hard worker. The Lord provided for her through the kindness of Boaz. It's not Naomi and her scheming and planning. It's the kindness of the Lord. And God's kindness is so lavish that he doesn't forsake the living and he doesn't forsake the dead. Some of you might feel today that God's forsaken you, he's given up on you, that there's no way a a kind God could, could be allowing your life to turn out this way. Oh, but friends, it's not so. He has not forsaken the living, and he never will. He didn't leave Naomi, and he won't leave you. But it's interesting that Naomi says that God's kindness hasn't forsaken or forgotten the living or the dead. God hasn't forgotten the dead. Remember, the story of Ruth begins with Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, dying and leaving behind these widows. That's the main crisis, the main conflict, the main problem in the book of Ruth. That Elimelech has died, and there is no man to uphold the family name. And so if an heir doesn't rise up, then Elimelech's name is going to be forgotten. God can't allow that to happen because God's kind to the living and to the dead. And so in Israel, they had a practice called leveret marriage. And what that means is that when a situation like Ruth and Naomi's situation happened, When a man died, leaving behind a widow with no children, that widow would attach to the man's brother, and if he didn't have a brother, a near relative, and they would be married, and they would have children, and the first child would take on the the late husband's name and preserve his family line, preserve his legacy. You read about that in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together, so this is the law of God. God is setting up the society where his people will live. And in Deuteronomy 25, he he teaches about this leveret marriage, and he makes it the law of his people because he doesn't ever want the living or the dead to be forsaken. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger, Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It's a duty. He has a responsibility as a family member to not forsake the living. We're not going to leave that widow to be not provided for. Or the dead. We're not going to leave the late husband without a legacy. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It's kind of like protecting an endangered species. Some people are very concerned about protecting endangered species. And what's interesting about those kinds of activists and workers is that they're not even particularly concerned with the preservation of individual animals so much as they're concerned with the salvation of entire species. They say, we can't let this species pass away. We've got to preserve it because it's beautiful and it's important to the ecosystem. And in the same way, leveret marriage was was not even singularly concerned with individuals as it was concerned with preserving family lines. Not one of the family lines that God has saved and redeemed could ever be blotted out because God never forsakes his people. 
And so Naomi celebrates that God is kind to the living. He's going to provide for the widows. And he's kind to the dead. He's going to provide a name and an heir to Elimelech. And then she, she keeps going. Naomi also said to her, the man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, one of our redeemers. So in this culture, a redeemer was a man who would take up that mantle, that duty of leveret marriage and marry his brother's wife after he had passed away. The redeemer was a head of a different household in your extended family. And he had a moral and a social and a spiritual obligation to help you in a time of difficulty, specifically here in the institution of leveret marriage. A redeemer is one who redeems. Redemption, then, is paying a price. It's never free. Redemption is paying a price to set someone free, whether from debt or slavery or just to otherwise reverse an unfortunate circumstance. It's an exchange. It's a turnaround. And so Naomi hears about Boaz and she says, he's a redeemer. He's got an obligation to help us to turn our situation around by the kindness of God. So the story keeps going. Verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Boaz is protecting Ruth. In an age where women were taken advantage of, left and right, Boaz protects her. So she kept close. Verse 23, the story continues. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. Till the end of the barley and wheat harvest, we're looking at a time frame of about six to seven months where Ruth is going to the fields every day, scavenging. Boaz's workers are being incredibly generous to her. And she's waiting six to seven months after first meeting Boaz, after first hearing that he's a redeemer, that he's a potential source of turnaround for them. She's going to the fields every day for six to seven months. And maybe, friends, you have been waiting six to seven months for turnaround, for redemption, for your suffering to be revealed and resolved. You hear about God's care. And you think, where is it? I don't see it in my life. Maybe, maybe you've been waiting for six to seven months. Maybe you've been waiting for six to seven years. Maybe you've been waiting for six to seven decades. And friends, even here in Ruth's perseverance, we see a reminder and an invitation to dangerously hope. Even when every circumstance tells you not to, remember that God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations, and he's going to do it at the perfect time. And one day we might begin to see the infinite tapestry of his wisdom and thank him for not delivering us sooner. Maybe. That's a dangerous thing to think about and pray for. God, deliver me in the right time. But friends, don't lose faith. Persevere. Trust that God is faithful and he is able. He's able to deliver you and he's faithful to deliver you. He's strong enough to save you and he's kind enough to save you. And throughout this time, verse 23 ends, Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3 begins. So after this six-month period, Naomi's ready to kick it into high gear a little bit, and the story, story gets more and more interesting. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So there was a cultural obligation that Naomi had to see her daughter-in-law provided for, to see her find a new 
husband and a new home that would protect her so she wouldn't have to scavenge in the fields for the rest of her days. But also, this is something that Naomi prayed for in the very first chapter of Ruth as they're reeling from the loss of their three husbands. Naomi, Naomi's husband, Ruth's husband, Naomi's son, and Naomi's other son. Naomi prayed in Ruth 1.9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So this is Naomi's duty. And she prayed that God would make it happen, that God would provide rest for his people. Verse 2. So this, Ruth, Naomi's describing the situation. She says, you need to find rest. Like this scavenging thing, this, this gleaning thing, it's not going to last forever. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? He's a redeemer, remember? Head of, a, of another household in Ruth and Naomi's extended family who has a moral and social obligation to help them. See? Naomi says, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. So Naomi says, she hatches a plan for Ruth and Naomi, or for uh, Ruth and Boaz to take the next step in their relationship. So Naomi says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak, because she's going to go outside overnight, she's got to stay warm. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man, that's Boaz, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So Naomi instructs Ruth, go to Boaz at the end of his workday. Don't interrupt him. Wait until he's done with his work done with his meal for the night until he lays down to sleep and then you can approach him and and her instructions end and he will tell you what to do. Naomi trusts Boaz to do the right thing. And this is a massively important theme in the rest of the book of Ruth. That Ruth and Boaz especially are presented as a man and a woman of noble character. They're trustworthy. They're trustworthy. You're going to see that highlighted again and again and again throughout the rest of this chapter that Ruth and Boaz are, have a noble character. And that's important. We'll explain why in a minute. Verse 5, Ruth replies, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, that's past tense of drink, he wasn't intoxicated, When he had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. We need to say something here because some of you have probably heard this, that this is a sexual act that Ruth is performing. It's not. She's uncovering his feet so that a breeze would come and gently wake him up. Ruth is not doing anything sexual. And the author actually takes pains in several places throughout this chapter to make abundantly clear that nobody was taking off any clothing. And on top of that, you get the explicit details that nobody was removing any clothing. And then also you get the subtext that Ruth and Boaz are presented as a man and a woman of noble character. So if in the middle of the night they have this strange sexual encounter, that would cut up against everything else that the story's been saying about them so far. Even think about the very first mention that we have of Boaz in in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, is that he's he's a worthy man. He's a man of valor. He's a man of noble character. And so what happens? Verse 8 At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? Again, Boaz is alone with a woman in the middle of the night, and no one else is around. Maybe no one else is even nearby. 
He's in a culture where he could do whatever he wanted to a woman and no one would look the other way or think twice. And Boaz doesn't. He doesn't take advantage of the situation. He seeks truth, not pleasure. Again, it's absolutely unthinkable to read this passage in a sexual way. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant or your handmaid. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth makes a request of Boaz. Spread your wings over me. That's a cultural idiom for marriage. You see it used a couple times in the, in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 16. But spread, the spreading of the wings, a man would spread his wings or, 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 or uh, fold a woman under his robe. He would bring her in and he would protect her. It's an image, it's an idiom for marriage. But I think Ruth is doing something else here. Because in chapter 2, in Ruth and Boaz's first encounter, Boaz blessed Ruth. He spoke a blessing over her in chapter 2, verse 12. He said, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That was in their first conversation. And so I think Ruth is calling that to mind. And she's saying, Boaz, do you remember that you wanted God's kindness to come and wash over me? I believe that you're going to be the vehicle by which that takes place. Spread your wings over your servant. She's challenging Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. Why? Because he's a redeemer. He has a moral and a social obligation, and he has the, he has the opportunity to do something about it. It's not just obligation, it's opportunity. If Boaz was just some random guy on the street, he couldn't just step into somebody else's family line and marry Ruth. He has, somebody has to step in to provide an heir for Elimelech. But Boaz is a redeemer. He has an opportunity. And it's so interesting here that Ruth just completely upends social convention. She's a foreign woman talking to an Israelite man. She's a servant, a gleaner, and he's the boss, he's the farmer, he's the owner of the land. And Ruth upends social convention by coming and making a direct request to him, marry me. And so this is like, this is, the tension's at an all-time high. And we're like, what's going to happen? Like, she just did that? She just did that? I can't believe that. And what, how's Boaz going to respond? The tension's at a breaking point. How's the story going to end? Is this going to work out for Ruth? Is she going to mess up her awesome gleaning gig where she's getting like six gallons of barley every day? Is she going to mess it up by like being too forward? Oh man, like Ruth and Naomi might have just cooked themselves. Like what are they going to do? They're going to go back to Moab. What's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. Verse 10, the tension breaks. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. All the tension leaves the room. He blesses her. He blesses her. He doesn't look at her and say, I can't believe you're coming to me. He says, oh, may God be kind to you. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth has done nothing for Boaz except make requests of him. And Boaz calls that kindness. He says, Ruth, it's your kindness that you came and gleaned in my field. Ruth, it's your kindness that you would come and ask me to redeem you. It's your kindness. And she hasn't gone after a young man, whether poor or rich. Boaz is saying, you could have probably found a younger guy, better looking guy, a more wealthy guy, but you didn't. You chose me. Man, that's awesome. What a story. And now my daughter, verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. 
Oh, friends, what a word. What a word. Maybe, maybe we would do well to say that to our brothers and sisters in their times of suffering. To look one another in the eye and say, do not fear. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Boaz says, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For why? Why is he going to do that? For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Again, in chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz highlighted as, an, as a noble man. Here in chapter 3, verse 11, Ruth highlighted as a noble woman, a woman of noble character. And he says, that's what I'm interested in. Your noble character. That, that, those, that phrase, worthy woman or noble woman, is used in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, which describes the virtuous wife. The, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth is actually stuck right behind the book of Proverbs. So if you were reading this as a Hebrew Israelite, you would come, you would read through the book of Proverbs, you would end with this stunning poem in Proverbs 31 about a virtuous woman, and then you would read the book of Ruth, and you would see a picture of a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife. Again, it's the same language. Worthy woman. A worthy woman. Who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Boaz is, is attracted to Ruth, not just by her appearance, but by her noble character. And friends, we also ought to think that way about marriage. So husbands, married men in this room, cherish your wives. Because an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. Husbands, cherish your wives. Single people. Don't disparage marriage in an age where it's so easy to do that. Don't say things like, oh, you got to go home to the old ball and chain. Or when people get married, don't say like, you know, like RIP. Value marriage. Don't slander it. Single people who are looking towards engagement, look for a worthy woman and a worthy spouse. A worthy husband. Not saying like, oh man, are they good enough for me? But do they have godly character? Are they a godly individual? Do they love Christ? Are they growing in Christ-likeness? Am I willing to be committed to this person's character for the rest of our days, even if they don't grow at all? Do they have a character? Do they have habits? Do they have attributes that I'm looking forward to seeing mirrored in our children one day? Lord willing. Look for noble character. Don't marry for charity. Don't say, I could fix him. I could fix her. No. Look for a, a, a man, a woman, a spouse of noble character. Verse 12. Boaz continues. That was just an aside. But Boaz continues. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet... There's a redeemer nearer than I. So the cultural custom is that the man's brother would marry his widow. And Boaz is saying, the closest relative needs to do this. And Boaz is like, Ruth, this is awesome. I'm pumped about this. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen in our future together. There's a little bit of a problem. And so just when we thought all the tension is released, then you're like, oh, no. No, there's another guy that's a closer relative who has, who has a higher right to be a redeemer than Boaz does. Now, note it, throughout chapter 2, we pointed out last week, Boaz didn't care at all about cultural customs. He couldn't care less about what was right or wrong according to society. He cared a lot about the law of God, didn't care a lot about what people said was right or wrong. He was dangerously, radically generous. But now he's really concerned about cultural customs because it's not his rights that are on the chopping block. It's someone else's. And oh, friends, what a picture, again, of his noble character. 
He's willing to lay down his rights left and right. He's not willing to take somebody else's away. I could invite you to my house for lunch freely. I couldn't invite you to Chad's house for lunch because it's his house. I can't just usurp his rights. And also, in a way, friends, notice that this lets Boaz off the hook. If he didn't want to marry Ruth, if he didn't want to show generosity and kindness to Ruth, this is his exit door. He's like, all right, got a reason to leave. Like, I've got, a, I've got an easy off-ramp. Oh, friends, don't do that. When you have an opportunity to serve someone, don't look for a way out. Look for the quickest route to kindness. Verse 13, Boaz continues. So we've got this new conflict. What's going to happen? Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. If this other relative will redeem you, good. Let him do it. So Boaz's chief concern is that Ruth and Naomi would be provided for. That's a pretty cool, noble character. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, he makes an oath, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. They want to be discreet. They don't want to give the wrong impression. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment, bring out your scarf or your shawl, big blanket scarf for fall. Open it up. Bring the the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. He's just being embarrassingly generous to Ruth. Maybe because he didn't have an engagement ring or something. I don't know. And so Naomi's been up all night. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how would you fare, my daughter? What happened last night? How'd it go? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Notice there, it's God's kindness to the living and the dead. He doesn't just want to make sure that Ruth gets a, gets a husband. He wants to make sure that Naomi is provided for, that Elimelech has a line. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, sit tight. Don't worry. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There will be no delay. Boaz is serious about this. He is going into the town. He is going to resolve the matter. He is going to check this redeemer and figure out how Ruth's situation and Naomi's situation is going to be resolved. And we're left wondering, oh man, is Boaz going to get the girl? Is Naomi going to be taken care of? Is Ruth going to be taken care of? And, and we're stuck with this tension again. What if this other redeemer is like a lousy guy and isn't going to be good to them? It's this tension again, right? Come back next week and we'll see the rest of the story. But before we go today, Boaz, the redeemer, gives us a picture of the ultimate redeemer, Christ. So before we get into exactly what I mean by that, I want to just do a little bit of foundational work here about how do we even read the Bible this way. And this is important because in the new year, we're going to do a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and this kind of thinking is chock full of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to do a little foundational work. Just stick with me, guys. We're going to use a word, and that word is a type. A type. And a type is something in the Bible, whether that's a person, symbol, event, or institution, that corresponds to something else later on. And specifically, it corresponds by being similar and yet greater. It's kind of like an appetizer before the main course. An appetizer has nutritional value in and of itself, but really the appetizer is not meant to fill you up. It's meant to get you ready for something better, the main course. And a type in the Bible 
is getting you ready for something better. Something that corresponds to something later on in the story. Let me give you an example. Adam. Why do I use that example? Because the Bible explicitly gives us that example. In Romans 5, 14, Adam, who was a type of the one to come, that's Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. He's similar to Christ. He corresponds to Christ, but Christ is greater. So what, who is Adam? The Bible tells this story in its very first chapters. Adam and Eve were the first man and woman placed in God's garden paradise as representatives of all of humanity to come after them, given one command, don't eat the forbidden fruit. They broke the command, and as a result, they were cursed, and all of their children were cursed with them. All of creation is in a curse. So Adam and Christ are similar. They're both sons of God. They're both men. They're both called as representatives of all of humanity. But how are they different? You see how they correspond? How are they different? And specifically, how is Christ greater? Adam was created. Christ was uncreated. Christ has always been. He's greater than Adam. Adam sinned. Christ has never sinned. He's always done the right thing. You can always look to Christ to trust for, with trust and faith because he's better than Adam. Christ never sinned. The children of Adam are condemned forever under the curse because of our sin. And the children of Christ are reconciled to God forever. Because Christ is the true and better Adam. Adam corresponds to Christ. They're similar and yet different because Christ is greater. Let me give you another example of a type. Boaz. Think about it. How are Boaz and Christ similar? How are they the same? They both came from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah you might remember from Genesis 49, was the tribe that God promised a king would come up from to rule over Israel. They're both from the tribe of Judah. They're both from the city of Bethlehem. They're both redeemers. Specifically, they're redeemers of the nations. They redeem people outside of ethnic Israel. Boaz redeems Ruth, the Moabitess. Christ redeems the nations. Revelation 5, verse 9 says about Christ, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're both redeemers. They both invited people that they would redeem under their wings. So we read earlier in, in Ruth 3, 9, Boaz, or Ruth requested to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus describes his deliverance, his redemption, as the same way as a coming in under the wings. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. There's a lot of stunning similarities between, between Boaz and Christ. Why? Because Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz is an appetizer. Yeah, his story is pretty astounding, but it is meant to get you ready for a main course that is infinitely more astounding, the person of Christ. Because while Christ is similar to Boaz, hot dog, he is greater. He is way greater than Boaz. Because while Boaz saved Ruth from poverty, Christ saves his people from eternal death. Friends, you can look to Christ and he gives you something infinitely better than health, wealth, happiness, and prosperity. He gives you everlasting life. Don't come to Jesus to get stuff. Come to Jesus to get God himself. Boaz could save Ruth from poverty. And there's a lot of things you could throw your life at that would save you and, and make you a little bit happier maybe in this life. Nothing can satisfy you like Christ can. So come to Christ. 
Boaz saved Ruth from poverty. Christ saves people from eternal death. Boaz shows kindness to the dead. Remember chapter 2, verse 20 of Ruth. Jesus offers resurrection from the dead because he's the true and better Boaz. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, the children of Adam are under a curse. We've all got to die for our sins. And Jesus interrupts. He stands in the gap and he says, no, anyone who believes in me, yet he shall die. He shall live forever. Boaz, how is Christ greater than Boaz? Because Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's doing his duty as a child of Abraham to save his relatives. But Christ brings people in. He doesn't merely do his duty to the family of Abraham. He expands the family of Abraham. Boaz spent some money to pay for Elimelech's land, spoiler alert, chapter 4, Boaz spent some money to pay for Elimelech's land to redeem Ruth. Christ spilled his blood to pay for our sins and redeem us. Christ is the true and better Boaz. And how is Christ able to redeem you? Not because he threw some money on the table, but because he gave his life. Christ, who never sinned, died on a cross, and there he was being punished, not for his sins. He didn't have any sins to pay for. He didn't have any debt to settle. He was being punished for our sins on the cross. He took our place to be our redeemer. He, he, stuck, he took the curse that Adam had earned and swallowed it for his people, dying in our place. And three days later, he rose victoriously so that he is able to save you. Christ is the true and better Boaz. And Boaz redeemed Ruth, and it was awesome, but he's dead and in the ground now. And Christ is not. He is alive, and he's reigning victoriously. And friends, you could look to him in faith today and be saved. And why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you have this stunning redemption from Christ, the true and better Boaz, who spilled his blood to pay for your sins and redeem you? Oh, friends, don't leave here today without settling that, without coming to God through Christ, the true and better Boaz. Friends, why does any of this matter? Sure, it's cool. And some of you are like, yeah, this is awesome. The Bible is cool. It's all connected. Some of you are like, okay, that's kind of neat. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Why is it important to read the Bible this way? Because it keeps us from getting distracted. It helps us focus on the main point. There's an author that I love who wrote a book about Ruth. And I've loved to read through that book as I've prepared these sermons. And, and he got to the end of Ruth chapter 3, and his, his big point that he was driving towards is, don't have premarital sex, like Ruth and Boaz didn't. And I was like, okay, I mean, they didn't, sure. Okay, but that's not the point. The point of Ruth chapter 3 is actually something so much more astounding that God redeems people who are unworthy of it. And so maybe you have had premarital sex and you're thinking, that's the point of Ruth chapter 3? No way God is going to love me. I don't have noble character. And friends, that's the point. He redeems people against the odds. Against the odds. He redeems people who don't deserve it. That's why Jesus died, so that you don't have to. We're worthy of death. Christ is worthy of life. He took our death in his place, gives us his life in his place. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life for in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Friends, it matters to read the Bible this way because God's redemption is running towards people that don't deserve it. People like me and people like you. God's redemption is coming to set you free from something much worse than poverty, from death and separation from God. Friends, Christ is the true and better Boaz. He is a redeemer. So what does it mean, in closing, for Christ to be a redeemer? 
I looked through the New Testament. I read every, every passage in the New Testament that talks about Christ redeeming us from our sins. And what does it mean? Three things. Number one, what does redemption mean? What does it mean for Christ to be a redeemer? It means payment for sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Christ died so that you don't have to. He rose from the dead so that you could too. Christ is a redeemer. He pays for your sins. And so friends, if that means if you're feeling guilty today, if you're feeling ashamed by what you've done in your past or even this morning, Christ has come to make you clean. What does it mean for Christ to be a redeemer? It means payment for sins. And it also means freedom from the curse. You remember that Adam sinned and all of his children were cursed along with him? Christ breaks the chain. He interrupts the curse. He brings salvation to his people. Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The curse has ruined everything, cursed the whole world, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first roots of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christ is a redeemer, which means he interrupts the curse. He frees his people. So friends, if you're feeling feeling weary today, look forward to the day that Christ will come to make all things new. There's so many people in our church who struggle with chronic pain. People in our church that have messed up backs, daily migraines, constant other woes and weariness. You can have hope. Not because I'm going to promise you some miracle cure, but because Christ is coming and he's going to make it okay because he is a redeemer who makes all things new. What does it mean for Christ to be a redeemer? Payment for sins, freedom from the curse, and finally, he makes us God's family. Galatians 4 verse 5. To redeem those, Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as God's sons. So friends, if you're feeling lonely, Christ has come to make you his. You're not alone anymore. Feeling guilty, weary, or lonely? Look to Christ as a redeemer because he has come so that every sin could be forgiven. Every pain could be healed. And every pang of loneliness resolved by fellowship with a perfect God.